Pittsburgh. My name is Clancy Immerslund, and I am the uh, I am the last speaker of a very distinguished panel of authorities in the field of alcoholism. I don't know if you're familiar with with carnival procedures. I once was in one of my incarnations. There's a there are three there are three aspects to a carnival presentation. One, the guy comes out and something someone called a barker, and he with pretty girls or music or something talks. He's a talker, and he talks people to in front of the stand and he entertains them and so on. Then when they get a bunch of boob standing there, they do what's called turning the tip. That is where they do something to make them buy that ticket. Here, get that ticket. Wonderful things inside. Don't miss it. Now, 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 now. Yeah, okay. And when they get all done with that, and the show is over, they, uh, they want to get rid of these boobs so they can make room for the next crowd. And they have some particularly turn-off guy do what is known as the blow-off. Well, you get rid of them. My job in this series is your blow-off man. <laughs> Hopefully when, when I'm done, you have had enough. But uh, in looking over the program for this series, there have been a very, very... I've known a number of those people. Some I do not know, but they're bona fide, certainly are impressive. And it, uh, I have known some of them and with a great deal of admiration. Dr. Kirsch, for example, who uh, I've always felt was one of the very few non-alcoholic professional people who really understood alcoholism at a visceral level and can talk about it knowledgeably, and when he can't talk about it, he sends people where they can be talked to about it knowledgeably. But if information on the subject were sufficient, we would not have the vast problem of alcoholism. Because in the last number of years, there's been a great deal of information made available and disseminated. If that amount of information were made available on cancer, cancer patients would flock to get the data, or friends of cancer patients, or relatives of cancer patients. If that amount of information was made on diabetes even, there may be that much on diabetes, but uh, if there were people with diabetics in their family would rush to find out about it. But the peculiar aspect of alcoholism is one of the, one of the borderline or negative illnesses in which your mind may tell you it is a physiologically conditioned illness, but your deep heart said no. It's people who don't care. It's people who don't give a damn. And you can think all you want. And this happens to people who have it. So it certainly must happen to people who surround people who have it. And that's why the dismaying, lethal statistics in this field continue to go. Continue diminished somewhat over the years, but not, not so much. It's a, 
It's an amazing thing. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, some of the self-help groups, perhaps. Some of you are familiar with AA or some of the others. I know that that is the posture of the National Council on Alcoholism, to say there are a number of self-help groups, and it's true that the National Council is connected with none of them formally. But I, I used to do, many years ago, a good degree of public information speaking for the National, for the Los Angeles Council on Alcoholism, years ago. And um, whenever we went out, it was the necessary for the moderator, we talked to all of us other places, for the moderator to say, now we have a representative here of one of the ways to stay sober. And there are many other ways to stay sober, but we have a representative here from one of the ways. The moderator must say that. And I went out about ten times like that, or maybe more, and I finally, I'm like a guy in a comic strip. One day I was driving down the road and a, and a cloud formed over my head and the light bulb lit in it. And it said, idea. <laughs> and uh, I, the next time they asked me, I said, I feel that I'm giving a one-sided picture to the recovery program from alcoholism. All these poor people are ever hearing from is one, one of the ways to stay sober. Next time, why don't you bring representatives from all the ways to stay sober? And we can all talk. And when you get them together, let me know. And uh, somehow or other, I've, I never got called back. But that's not putting anything down. I know that that is necessary because it is true. There are people, there are people who are sober in other disciplines or self-help than AA. It's just sometimes hard to locate them. And I don't mean that derogatorily. I just mean that I'm just implying derogatory, uh, derogatory. I'm not saying it is. But the problem, what's amazing is that and has been said here, I'm sure, by every speaker who spoke here, that the great problem in alcoholism is lack of knowledge of what it really is, and with that lack of knowledge, the denial of the alcoholic to accept his own involvement in it, and the inability to treat people who don't feel they need to be treated. It really is a and the, and the puzzlement of families who have one of them and everybody knows they're one of them except them and it really is a baffling thing. It's kind of funny for a while but it isn't funny after a while. I, uh, I'm in a position and probably hardly anybody in this room is in tonight or today. I have the experience almost every day of my life of seeing alcoholics die. Probably most of you don't have that opportunity. I have the opportunity intermittently of seeing cases of alcoholic insanity. Now, I've always thought or thought for years that alcoholic insanity was measured by people who act crazy. Now, right, if someone has gone too far, they have alcoholic insanity. But that isn't really alcoholic insanity. That might be borderline psychoneurotic behavior. 
alcoholic insanity is something different. You know, they, they say that alcoholism is the second greatest cause of insanity. And you just, just imagine someone acting, running through halls, acting silly. But that isn't what it talks about at all. Alcoholic insanity is when sufficient alcohol has been in the bloodstream, and it varies from individual to individual, to desiccate enough brain cells so that you're no longer able to function. Alcoholic insanity is just like advanced syphilis. When enough brain cells are gone, you don't go around acting funny. As a rule, you wind up on a porch where someone comes along and changes your diapers and feeds you three times a day and takes you to bed and back. And once that happens, you never recover. Alcoholic insanity is a, is a terminal thing because it's anything that affects brain cells is a terminal thing because brain cells do not reconstitute themselves. There's no regeneration in brain cells. It's really singularly unfair to alcoholics of ourselves. The liver and the brain are two of the major organs in the whole body that do not regenerate new cells. And that's what alcohol hits, the brain and the liver. And just some days you just can't make it at all. It's just everything you touch goes bad. But alcoholic insanity is a dreadful thing. Watching people die from alcoholism is a dreadful thing. You think of people dying from alcoholism, and the way they listen, of course, if they're if they're dead, if we find them in the alley behind our building in the morning, I suppose that would be considered death from alcoholism, although sometimes they call it exposure. But I see many deaths of alcoholism, but I, I don't, wouldn't assume they list as a death of alcoholism. A man who's no longer able to walk and topple forward in front of a bus and the bus runs over his head, and that wouldn't be listed as a death of alcoholism, but it certainly is. So, but we see more and more in Skid Row now that never was there before, with the, uh, because of the different character of the population. More and more now. It's really sad to watch two old broken people having a knife fight and one goes down and comes clutching in and his stomach is cut out. Now, you say, that isn't really a death from alcoholism. But you say it is a death from alcoholism. But if you are like me, you might think, well, that's kid though. Sure, that's, sure they're dying on skid row. But I think uh, the figures are something defective. Those deaths on skid row all over the world, all over the country, are maybe 3% of the deaths from alcoholism or less. That leaves 97% or more in places like Santa Ana and Anaheim and Los Angeles and Minneapolis and Indianapolis and Atlanta and people like you and me who look almost indistinguishable from you and me and who are who you would think would not want to die a miserable death it isn't even a quick death that's one of the great recruiting lines of all of a sudden was absolutely innocuous so they say well if you're an alcoholic for you to drink is to die god i hope so yeah. It would be much more realistic to say, for you to drink is to ensure continued misery and pain and anxiety, not from the drinking, but from the emotions that go with it. Because the one, nearly all of the, nearly all of the medical research that has gone into alcoholism, they found out all sorts of things. You can get all sorts of data. Over the years, over the years, Medicine has made some rather significant 
advances. You know, for many years, medicine had no training in alcohol, which is not, so it's not surprising that they didn't know what the hell they're talking about when they talked about it, unless they chose to look into it. Up until maybe 25 years ago, in medical school, you got the same amount of training in alcoholism that you got in dengue fever. One half of one day. And there hasn't been a case of dengue fever in 50 years. And you get, you know, just case of alcoholism, that's what we think happened, and on and on. And so doctors were sig significantly ill-trained to deal with alcoholics. Because alcoholics, if anybody in the world looks like just another bunch of self-indulgent neurotic pukes, it's alcoholics, which is why traditionally for many years the, the, the medical treatment of alcoholics was, here, take these as needed and good luck. Because the doctor traditionally wanted to get these goofs out of his office so he could take care of people who are really sick, you know. How do you deal with someone who staggers in and they looked at me funny on the bus this morning. <laughs> here, take that. I've got a lady in here with a ruptured spleen. Who cares about how they looked at you, you dummy? And uh, the first major study of alcoholism ever made, it wasn't even made of alcoholism, it was made of alcoholics, was in the late 1950s at, at Yale University, the Yale Institute of Alcoholic Studies, and they studied alcoholics to they're going to make a breakthrough and try to find out what the, what is it with these goofs? You know. And they had alcoholics of all backgrounds and all socioeconomic profiles and all. They gave them psychological profile tests. They tested them against controlled groups of people they knew to be non-alcoholic. I could give them each two drinks and try to measure the reaction to see if they could identify this and on and on. I've often thought I would, I'm certainly glad that I, as a practicing alcoholic in those days, would, was not involved in that test. That must have really been, you know, well, here's a drink, drink it. Here's another drink, drink it. Okay. Well, that's all of our tests for today. Yeah. Maybe all of your tests, Jim, but it's not all of mine. You want to see a real reaction? Give me that goddamn bottle. <laughs> but they examined all sorts of people. And they never really found anything that they all had in common except two things. They found two relatively similar things. One, for reasons they could not identify nor measure, nor can people really measure it today, alcoholics react differently to a given amount of alcoholics they're non-alcoholic. Doesn't mean they go crazy or they act weird. They just seem to have an overreaction somehow, which later came down to be, they call it a personality change, perhaps. But something literally, you can watch an alteration. It's like, you know, it's not surprising that Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, suffered from alcoholism. I'm sure he was, much of that was autobiographical, just watching that personality change. Then, the other thing that they all had in common was they all ranked very, very high in perfectionism on the psychological profile. 
They were all perfection. Although none of them sure would have identified themselves as perfectionists. I never would have identified myself as a perfectionist. I do have a certain flair for if it isn't perfect, screw it. But I mean, <laughs> I, I am not a perfectionist. And there was one other aspect which they did not measure. And I'm sure that if they would have measured it, they would have gotten unanimity on this subject. I am sure that if they could have put a, found some way to put, insert the question or the information. Do you, deep in your heart, believe your case is different? <laughs> you bet. <laughs> you bet. And those are the characteristics. And then alcoholism became kind of a, with Yale, that study, it became a little more socially acceptable. And uh, I remember, I, uh, I, be I became sober in 1958. Our moderator this morning made it sound as though I were very gracious in going some years ago, leaving a, I left a marketing job in Beverly Hills about 10 years ago to go down and run the Midnight Mission, which is a different situation. And when you get introductions, as our kindly Muriel did this morning, it makes it sound that I were a dedicated, wonderful man. It isn't quite that way. One of the reasons I went back there is because in 1958, I was 86 out of the Midnight Mission, and I swore I'd go back and get him someday. And uh, so I'm down there looking for that guy assiduously. He hasn't showed up yet, but he'll be along. But I got sober in 1958, the, after that, and uh, early 1960s, I was working again as a writer for a long time I just worked in non-writing jobs such as furniture moving and washing dishes there. but I finally held a job and I was working in medical corporation I remember in 1961 or 62 seeing the first full page ad I recall ever being in a medical journal about the treatment of alcoholics and it said uh, to the effect you know doctors now you can treat alcoholics without side effects, without negative effects, you can do something with them. You can reduce the anxiety and conflict and keep them. And I remember thinking, isn't that, isn't that just the way it goes? I fought that damn alcohol for years and almost killed me. Wound up on Skid Row, and if I could have held up three more years, and it even had a lovely name. It had a name that indicated freedom. It was called, this new product called Librium. And I thought, oh, if I only could have had them. Librium. And there was a, and no, sometime after that, I began to see the first Librium survivors. And I don't drink as much anymore, but I just I don't get up out of my chair much anymore. <laughs> and Valium and so on. And there were still in the mid-1960s and late 1960s agencies who could not, and as there still are, but much cut down, who felt that the treatment of alcoholics is somehow withdrawing them. Or that they are basically people who don't want to drink, but they just don't realize what drinking does to them. In the late 1960s, there's a lot of press given to a doctor in New Mexico who had found a breakthrough to psychologically keep alcoholics from drinking. And that was, 
he took movies of them when they were drunk. And then, the next time they felt like drinking, they'd go by his office, and he'd run a reel for them, and say, oh man, I don't want to be like that. Oh, thank you, doctor. And it really was tremendous, got a lot of ink around the country, uh, except unfortunately, of course, uh, it got to a point where people didn't feel like going to a show before they had a drink. It just <laughs> You would think intellectually that they'd want to not drink, but that's the whole problem. And it's hard to understand that. Uh, they, uh, near the end of that decade, beginning of the last decade, they had a great treatment out in Redlands at a big hospital. And that got two full pages, a page with a runover for another page. And they, this is a religious hospital, very fine people, but they were going to find a way once and for all to get these goofy alcoholics to shaped up. And they installed one of their wards in a bar. And these poor goofs would come in there, and now they're going to a religious hospital, there's going to be some sort of harangue from them. And they walk in, here's a bar. And some goof back there. You want a little drink, Slim? <laughs> I'm sure that first sip was very tentative. You know. What is this? J and B Scotch. Hey, you, you religious people know how to treat alcoholics. <laughs> and it really was a great cure, I'll tell you. So I missed that one too. In fact, I guess the aisles up the booze was so good they had. They had the glasses wired right to the bar so they couldn't take them back to their sleeping room. And these guys would get along fine, have a few drinks, and do good. And after a few days, they'd come in and have their drink in the morning, and, and they'd shoot an electric wire through that, or electric shock through that wire. So the guy just, happy days. <laughs> no more ice next time, Fred. Yeah. And they'd give him a drink without an electric shock. Well, that's more like it. <laughs> and after a while of this, you can imagine, you're just like a fawn in the forest while you're... <laughs> now finally, these guys would come in and say, you want a little drink? No, I don't think so. <laughs> and another cure went on the book. Funny now. But they really thought they had cured them. And they did a follow-up sometime later, of course, and discovered that most of them hadn't got by the first place that had glasses without wires. <laughs> uh, there was a, a big hospital in, in uh, Seattle in the early 1972. I always had a hobby of seeing cures to see what I missed. That's why I look into these things. But they had a big hospital. And they were, and they're still there, but with a different format. I, but their theory was that alcoholism is caused by an enzyme imbalance. And if you can readjust your enzymes, you should be able to drink socially. This craving and so on will go away. And they had a, the director of their program gave public addresses in which the most, he was a, a known bad alcoholic. And he was now sober, apparently, and he'd give a public addresses. And he had a staggering presentation. He'd say, some of these fanatic 
self-help groups tell you that abstinence is required. It may be for them, but not necessarily. With the program we have, something different can be done. And at the end of his talk, he would pick up a cocktail and drink it. Now, something like that, that's what you call your basic staggering presentation. A lot of people drifted by a 7-Eleven to see if they had any enzymes. And that was a very impressive, except unfortunately, the director one day, his enzymes kicked up, I guess, and he, uh, he wound up in a padded cell at that hospital. So they begrudgingly moved to abstinence as their product from, now, from then on. In the 1970s, most of you remember, I remember very well, the, our Santa Monica think tank coming out with a concept, the RAND report, alcoholics can drink again. And that, of course, there was a little disclaimer in small type, unless they are the ones who can't. <laughs> but, but they said alcoholics can drink again. And they had evidence. They had hundreds of people who were out there drinking successfully. They didn't issue the report till they did. It wasn't until relatively recently that a massive follow-up was made and found that they were nearly all of them dead or dying. But, you know, I often wondered how could they, what kind of follow-up did they use? Why, why didn't they see this? And I found out later from a guy at the Rand Corporation how they made the mistake. They didn't understand the alcoholics either. You know how they did their follow-up? They called them up. Yeah. In my worst day, I could pass that test because still doing fine. Yeah. It really is a... And it goes on and on. And for instance, that deal in the hospital, and like soap in the hospital. It all goes back in a sense to things that were pretty well set aside 50 years ago. The aversion treatment is nothing but the old Keeley cure, which was this, became a laughing stock after a while. Because the knowledge of it's I can project myself to that situation and just can understand the bafflement. Again, if anyone had anything that was destroying them and you got them away from it, you would be absolutely baffled if they went voluntarily back to it. You know, uh, I know that this last year, a year ago about, a guy I know very well, a lawyer, had advanced emphysema and he was dying from it almost. He had to go to the hospital every once in a while and have oxygen stuck in his nose and down. And he'd come out and go home and fire up a cigarette. I, I, Joe, what the hell is this? How you, can you smoke when your lungs are? And uh, it was just I, it was like watching a man commit suicide. And as I, when I'm going home tonight, I thought to myself, that's just the way it's got to be. That's just the way it had to be for my family or people who love me watching me after being laboriously withdrawn, be hospitalized, be strapped down, be put into an insane asylum, all these things, come back and one day hit it again. And never know, I couldn't explain to them because I didn't know why. 
I knew why going in, but by the time they asked me, I didn't know what it was. And that's what makes this problem so baffling. And that's what makes it so difficult to understand. Because it really gets down to this. How can anyone understand it when the person who has it, how can anyone else accept it? And that's why alcoholism, as at the current stage of understanding, pretty much universally among anyone who knows anything about it in the medical profession or psychiatric profession, not entirely, but among the people who know anything about it, they pretty well agree that abstinence is the only answer. There is no control left. Nobody knows why. There may be control for a little while, but or as one, one of these self-help therapies say, there seem to be brief recoveries followed always by still worse reasons. And that's what, uh, that's what makes alcoholism smack of moral degeneracy. And that's what makes alcoholism smack of weak-willed, pathetic people who should know better. And that's why a real case, I suppose, can be made to call alcoholism a disease of perception. A disease of perception. Not, not how anyone views their drinking, but much more, much more complex. The one aspect that makes alcoholism cunning and baffling and powerful is that neither the treater or the treatee usually understands what's wrong. Really. They keep thinking that it's the alcohol. And if I can get the patient off alcohol, I'll be all right. And look what alcohol is doing to you. Why do you keep using it? And all, all of the research, all of the investigations into the metabolic differences of the alcoholic body and all of the differences of the malfunctioning of the endocrine or ductless glands or whatever the hell it might be, or in reverse diabetes, hyperinsulinism, all the theories that have gone on to try to describe this, the only thing that they're unable to measure is the perception of the alcoholic. And the alcoholic doesn't know it, and they don't. And that's why formal clinical treatment has almost always been non-effective in the treatment of alcoholics. And so I want to, for a couple of minutes this morning, discuss, by an odd coincidence, the title of my talk I noticed in the program, Alcoholism, a Disease of Perception. The, probably the number one mistake in the treatment of alcoholism or in the identification of alcoholism, I'm certainly not accusing people of treating alcoholism wrong, I'm talking about the identification by the alcoholic or by the non-alcoholic, is as I said, that alcoholism is, that we're dealing with an alcohol problem. It is not an alcohol problem. 
I would like to give you my opinion. I can give you only my opinion. I may secretly feel that I speak for the wisdom of the ages, but I'm required to say this is only my opinion. In my opinion, the great problem, I think it's borne out, is people thinking they have an alcohol problem. Now, if you have an alcohol problem, the treatment for an alcohol problem is relatively simple. You have the people not drink. That's all. That's how you do it. You may charge them a lot for the data, but that's what it is. Don't drink. But this is not an alcohol problem. I don't believe alcoholics have an alcohol problem. Now that sounds upside down. But I want to say this slowly and clearly and distinctly. Because it sounds like heresy, but I, I bet my life on it every day. If my problem is alcohol, I am not an alcoholic. Or conversely, if I am an alcoholic, my problem is not alcohol. Now that sounds really crazy, doesn't it? But it really is literally true. Because if the problem is alcohol, the solution to it is not drinking. And that solution has been found 5,000 years ago. This is nothing that was stumbled on in research recently. If you have a problem with alcohol, you don't drink alcohol. If you have a problem, if you are allergic to orange juice, and every time you take a glass of orange juice, it makes your nose fall off, you know, the finally, with the additional lot of help, you come to the conclusion. I'm not going to drink that orange juice. You might give it one last shot just to be sure. Oh. I've lost my nose. How do I smell? Pretty bad, you know. But if that's the problem, if it's changed, and people like me, and I'm sure like many people like me, have tried that again and again. I have sworn off with and without oath. I'll tell you, probably the most important single swear-off I ever made. Once upon a time, many years ago, my little boy died when I was in the hospital. When I was in jail. I was in jail, not in the hospital. And the judge released the judge was in there for drunken scuffling, and I was an executive. And he was, his little casket was about this big. And I felt so remorseful. And I carried his little casket. I said, I'll be his pallbearer. I don't want somebody else touching his desk. I set it down and I put my hand on it. I took a vow. This will never happen again. Ever, ever. Baby John, if it ever happens to me, I hope, I hope my arms wither and fall off. And I had tears of absolute sincerity in my eyes. I would have given my life to keep that from happening. And about 29 days later, in another city, I was working. The feelings of remorse and pain were so intense that I had to have a few drinks to relax. Now, you try to explain that to anyone. And I remember my, my family saying, how could you? How could you after what happened to John? How could you get like this? I don't know. 
I, I knew why going in, but I didn't remember why coming out. And it goes on like that. You have to withdraw from alcohol is the answer. No matter how you do it, whether it's done nicely in 30 days or do it cold turkey on the floor of a jail, the one thing is you get withdrawn. But that's how you beat an alcohol problem. Now this funny, deadly, bewildering, baffling, frustrating thing called alcoholism has one significant difference, and that is this. And it's one that nobody ever seems to recognize at the moment, and that is this. The difference between an alcohol problem and alcoholism is that stopping drinking has no effect on alcohol. In fact, it begins to make it worse. Stopping drinking moves you across the line from some degree of relief to unvarnished, gray, cold, remorse-filled, anxiety-filled reality, and it gets worse as you go along. And that is the greatest evidence I know in my life that I was able to deny. But my problem is not alcohol. I have these other problems, real problems, problems I couldn't describe, problems that seem to me and apparently seem to everybody else who ever had them, but they all think they are unique in it. Somehow or other, I'm more sensitive than other people. Somehow or other, I feel things too intensely. Somehow or other, I have anxieties that I somehow I'm, feel different somehow, and I, I don't want to feel different. This is a great feeling. I feel lonely more than other people. I feel, and the only way you have to measure how you feel compared to other people, of course, is you look at them. And you fall into the trap that every human being falls into sometimes. Alcoholics fall into it a lot because you go into that trap when you're feeling insecure. And that trap is when you begin comparing to see why you are different when you feel different. And you look around in a job situation, in a social situation, amongst people you know well, and you get answers. And the problem is the answer is always wrong, but you never know it and you have no way to compare it. And the reason is because every human being must, and they always make these comparisons when they feel bad. You don't ever compare when you feel good. You compare when you feel bad. And I never realize I am comparing my insides against other people's outsides. I am comparing my raw meat against defense mechanisms they've spent 30 years building to conceal their raw meat. And I can tell anyone here, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, when you make comparisons, when you feel bad, I think it's safe to tell you that you will never see anyone who looks as sensitive as you. You will never see anyone who looks as though they have the secret anxieties that bother you. You will never see anyone who looks as lonely or frustrated as you feel sometimes. And conversely, as they look at you, they will... These are comparatives when you are feeling negative. The very tools I have used to feel, to overcome my feelings of difference, have made me more alienated, and I never knew it. Because these are things there is no way to measure. You know, you can measure alcohol, but you can't measure difficulties in perception. When the highway patrol can stop you 
and measure you for alcohol, but they can't take a drop of blood out of your say, I'm going to run this through the scanner and see how much anxiety you got today. Yeah. <laughs> Walk this white line will determine if you're feeling different. It's kind of funny, but it really isn't funny because it's lethal. That's why nearly everybody who has alcoholism dies from it, one way or another, slowly or quickly. That's why relatively few people, really relatively few people, ever achieve reality very long. And of those, some of those go back because they keep falling back into that same trap. I no longer drink, therefore I am all right. And that is the lethal error in that equation. The curse of alcoholism is not that you can't get sober. If getting sober was the answer, detoxes would turn out winners. Hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. Detoxes don't turn out winners. In fact, the classic American detox is not either a hospital or a detoxification center. The classic American detox for most alcoholics get sober is a toilet. You know, that works as effectively. It's a little less jar, I mean, a little more jarring on your nerves, but there are few problem drinkers who haven't knelt in front of the old porcelain altar in the morning and just gazed in those shimmering waters waiting for an answer to surface. Um, you know. And you even, you even can say your morning prayers, you could say. Oh, God. <laughs> but the one thing that happens is you detox. One of the things that makes alcoholism a little bewildering. I used to have the impression, because I used to hear people, real alcoholics, talk about it. They, they had stayed drunk around the clock for 20 years. Now I think to myself, that's an alcoholic. Not a slick guy who's had a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings. But I uh, found out something else. It is physically impossible for a human body to stay intoxicated 14 straight days and nights in laboratory conditions. In laboratory conditions. You certainly can't in the real world. So you always get sober. And the curse of alcoholism is sobriety. And now that doesn't make you an alcoholic necessarily having an unpleasant reality. But if one other factor is there, it will be. I think probably the, the study of this point that I want to make, running short a little time a little bit, so I know we're going to have a coffee break. Well, what I was trying to do in this first few minutes was establish, establish how bewildering this thing is. I think that to come to understand it, we would have to understand the perception of an alcoholic. To understand what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic, and therefore to get some understanding of how it can be beat. It cannot be beat with withdrawal. It cannot be beat with vows of chastity and obedience. It cannot be beat with Swearing oaths, it cannot be beat with anything. It can be beat only in one way, and that way is impossible. You have to change the world around an alcoholic. 
But there's a way to do that. And uh, I will take that up in the next hour. Thank you. Some of you come up and take these? Okay. People have called mentioned among themselves that I'm acting alcoholically. What is an alcoholic emotion? Is it something specific to alcoholics? I don't think so. I don't think there's such a thing as an alcoholic emotion. Again, there have been no emotions discovered, new emotions in 5,000 years. When I, get, when I get frustrated and crossed, I get frustrated and crossed just the way that the pharaoh of Egypt got frustrated and crossed. Different stimuli, but it's always the same emotion. Alcoholic emotions are, can also be, I would suppose, be described as highly sensitive emotion. Or, another word that is really just terrible, I would prefer never to hear it mentioned in my presence, because it's so true. Childish emotion. <laughs> Childlike emotion. And it's almost impossible to evaluate them because they're in a grown-up body with a grown-up brain, with grown-up abilities, with grown-up skills, with grown-up abilities to rationalize and justify, with grown-up everything. And all of this at the intermittent beck and call of childlike emotion. Overreactive emotion immature emotion. To handle and overreact badly to conflict. When the alcoholic gets sober, little by little the conflict comes back and he begins to react and overreact. He attempts to control it with his intellect to get things in order. He attempts to control these growing intense emotions. But there's one fact, I think, that is unquestioned in the study of the human psyche, and that is this. Intense, when the intense emotions and the intellect are in conflict, the emotions will always win. Always win. Sooner or later they will win. The intellect gets tired and takes a walk. <clears throat> and you can fight it and fight it and fight it. The power of the intellect to to subordinate the emotions by inflicting its intellectual will over them. Another term for that more easily, of course, is the power of the will or willpower to superimpose this. And that's why most people read, read inspirational literature, learn, try to find out data, anything to reinforce that intellect to hold those damn stinking emotions in fact. And sooner or later, never enough. Sooner or later, it is never enough. The strong, neurotic emotions will always overtake and subordinate the intellect. That's what, again, makes it baffling. So you, the sober alcoholic gets into a situation where it's little by little without being known to him. He sees things. His perception of things are absolutely clear. These are the things that are happening, and this and so your reaction to them becomes real, and that's the only way they can be reacted to, the way, given the nature of these things. And pretty soon you get to a point where life just begins to, begins to gray down. You just get gray and tense and anxious, and you might be clenching your fists to do, 
and people you're making these sacrifices for no longer seem to appreciate it. And on and on and on. And uh, one day you get to a point where it just gets to be too, seems to be too damn much. They joke about it sometimes. They say, why did you get drunk? And you know, a man getting up in the morning under pressure, hates to go there and face them again. Everything is going to hell. What he's wanted out of life, the dreams are obviously now frayed and dirty and the hopes are being destroyed by unfeeling hands and you put on those clothes and you can put them on, you lean over and you can't stand it. You're going to tie your shoe to go to work because the damn shoelace breaks and it's just as one thing to me. Say, ah, to hell with it. And that's the end of that. But sadly enough, when you talk to the man later, you say, you were just getting back together with your family and you had your job back. Why did you get drunk? And the man thinks, well, I, I broke my shoes. That's what you, you know. It sounds funny, but it's tragic because a lot of people will die from little things like that. Just little things. You cannot recreate human, you cannot recreate emotional pain. You can talk about it, but you can't recreate it. The human mind has been blessed or cursed with something called dynamic memory. In other words, the tendency to enhance pleasant memories and to diminish unpleasant memories. That helps people stay sane, of course. Thank God that everyone in the room has, had, has memory. That, thank God, nature has put a scab over for you to admit. But also, you cannot really recreate what happened. So, there you are. And you get to a point where it's untenable. Now, even then, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. That is not exclusive to alcoholics. There are millions of people who get just like this who are not alcoholics. They are known medically as intense or acute neurotics. They still see reality. Psychotics don't see reality correctly, but they see reality correctly. But they're reacting to it badly and emotionally. And things get obsessive and it just gets terrible. And unless something happens to help these people either diminish the conflict or diminish their reaction to it, some of them snap. And they become what's known as psychotic. And psychosis is when your brain, ultra simply, lowers the distorted glasses so you see reality differently, but at least it resolves the conflict for much of it. Now, it's a funny thing. Alcoholics rarely ever become psychotic. Hardly ever. Cases of alcoholic psychosis are just as rare as hen's teeth. Why? Because when it gets that bad, they will drink alcohol. Now the question is, why don't these neurotics drink alcohol and relieve the pressure? And there comes the most interesting facet of alcoholism. Because they do, and it doesn't remove the pressure. That's the difference between a neurotic and an alcoholic. An alcoholic gets a special effect from alcohol that most people don't get. That's why their drinking will not give them any relief. An alcoholic, he keeps every alcoholic and the people around them. Keep seeing what alcohol is doing to you. But by that time, it's way down the line. The operational aspect of an alcoholic is what alcohol does for him or her. And he doesn't know it does anything unusual for him, and nobody else does. 
but he can literally alter his perception of reality with alcohol. He can, he can, I can literally alter my relationship to my environment. I can literally almost instantly make myself bigger and more self-contained and them smaller and less threatening. Now, I didn't know this was doing this to me. I don't know where you'd ever find it out. Because that's an inside thing. And you just assume it does that for other people too. And if they don't drink, that means they don't have the pressures you have. That's why drinkers wind up running with drinkers. Nobody wants to be a drinker and wind up with some goof. You know, <laughs> stop after work and say, do you want a drink? Yeah, thanks. Okay, let's have another one. Oh, no thanks, I'm starting to feel it. I want to be with people who understand a colorful environment. When I'm in a bar at 11.30 at night and somebody says, Hey, let's go to Tijuana. I want to hear voices saying, Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be around some little goof that says, Why? I have to be to work at nine. What'll I tell Phyllis? <laughs> tell Phyllis to keep you home, you sick little son of a bitch. Come on. <laughs> I want to be with colorful people. I've suffered enough from grayness. It's time to have a little color, Jim. There's a lot of ways to measure alcoholics, but I'm it's this kind of a joke way, but it always strikes me as kind of funny. The non-alcoholic personality, and I've seen people do this and it just baffled me. See at parties, cocktail parties, years ago. I, uh, I guess I had a... Betty, I think you better drive home. <laughs> if I ever saw an alcoholic do that, my heart would stop. <laughs> the correct answer for me is, Give me those goddamn keys! now baby but alcohol has a special effect for me and the only bad thing about that is I'll tell you if you are an alcoholic two martinis will make you feel better than six months of psychotherapy <laughs> a bottle of good wine or bad will be better than years of metaphysical insight I've tried it both ways, and I'll tell you, the, I think probably the best example of that is, when I was about a year sober, I had a little job working at a firm called Weinberg Advertising out in West L.A. I was wrapping packages, which was kind of a come down for a man who had been an award-winning writer. I didn't have any front teeth either, so I, was, I thought I'd been scarred in a fire somewhere. But one of our accounts was something called Camp Chatko Vodka. And for years and years, you must have seen their boards, it always says, Vodka is pronounced Kamchatka. Now they've changed in the last couple of years, but for years and years. When I was there, it was old. That was 1950. And I thought, I'm going to let these guys know 
that there's an award-winning copywriter back here. They think I'm just a package wrapper, but why not let them know that I'm ready to make my move? So one day they were laying off this board, the artists and copywriters, and I came by with my packages and said, hey, it's none of my business, but uh, instead of that same slogan you've been using for 10 years, how about using something like Kamchatka Vodka, or Boo, better than all vodkas anyway. And they looked at me and I got the same look of disdain, and oh, you goofing, get out of here. I one guy says, if you don't like the way we do things, why don't you wrap packages in some other advertising agency? Just move it along. And I, I was just crazy. I would try to give an idea, and because I looked bad, they wouldn't listen to me. And that night, I was talking to a a, a sponsor. I tried to tell him the story. <laughs> Shut up! He explained. Try to try to be a man about it. <laughs> but I finally told him this whole hideous story. They won't even listen to me. They weren't even laughing. They were killing. In those kind of situations, they're not putting you down. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> to them, Kamchatka vodka doesn't go boom. <laughs> to them, Kamchatka vodka goes blah, blah, blah. That's why you're in this damn meeting and they're not. <laughs> I, oh, I said, yes. But I thought about that many times, you know. A lot of times, alcoholics wish they were non-alcoholics. They don't want to be non-alcoholics. They want to not get the bad effect. But I don't know any alcoholic who would like to go through life, have your back to the wall and the hounds of fate ripping at your throat. Oh, God. Only about 3, three to 7% of all drinkers will ever know what I have took for granted all my life. When the hounds of fate are ripping at your throat, it's like a creep. It doesn't go <laughs> Nothing changes, but it looks different. Now, if it does that for you, the one little negative thing happens. The tools I have or have lost in dealing with conflict, the ability to process conflict and difficulties, atrophy a little bit more from non-use. What's the sense of working out a painful situation for two weeks where I can change it in two minutes? So, by the time alcohol is doing something to you, that's way down the line. By the time it's doing something to you, sustained reality is just about untenable, piece by piece. The curse of alcoholism is that reality has become untenable, sustained reality. And you can have every reason in the world and you can prove your reasons are right. I watch, as I say, I watch men die and every one of them can assure me they're not really alcoholics. They had real problems. So. It appears that the, that the insoluble, unsolvable aspect of alcoholism is that somehow the world has got to change for this guy to make it, or this girl to make it, and you can't change the world. So, there you are.
that particular combination of alcohol, the answer now becoming alcohol the problem, together with a reality that sooner or later is so full of sharp corners it's unbearable, that is called alcoholism. And the reason people die from it a lot of times is because they confuse it with an alcohol problem. Alcohol. That's why very, very few people who work in the field of alcoholism understand it, unless they be alcoholic. That's why many people who work in the field of alcoholism and teach it well and do not take care of their own perceptions get drunk again. Sad fact, but true. All the knowledge of the intellect doesn't help when the emotions start to surge. You can be the smartest or the dumbest. I watched a department head at Caltech, and I watched ditch diggers die from the same. Now, that is why it is almost imperative that sooner or later, the alcoholic gains something besides knowledge of his illness, because knowledge alone is not enough. That is why, for most alcoholics, Something in the, nearly all else, every else, I suppose. Something addition must be added. He must have something or some way to little by little take some strides towards altering his perceptions of reality. Now, you cannot alter your emotions by thinking. You can over a long period of time. But that's like saying, I'm, I'm going to make up my mind. I'm not going to be hungry tonight. Have no control of it. That old hideous example they've used many times, this makes me sick, of eating a bar, a whole bar of X-Lax, and saying, I'm not going to go to the toilet today. I'm never going to look at another pretty girl. I'm never, you know, on and on. You can't, these are from the subconscious. You're just conditioned reflex. Like saying, I'm not going to blink. But a guy waves his hand by your eyes and you blink. You don't think about, shall I blink? You just do it. Condition reflex. That is why things such as Alcoholics Anonymous are very, is very effective. But Alcoholics Anonymous is not effective much of the time because people go there and keep thinking, if I learn what it's about, I will be all right. Somehow or other, there must be a motivation and a teacher that will enable people like me to act myself better. I cannot control my emotions, but I can control my actions many, much of the time. I can literally superimpose action over my emotions. The purpose of a sponsor or someone helping you is to superimpose objective perceptions over my subjective perceptions. The best way I know to describe that is that when you are seeing things with an upset mind and things look different, you're overreacting. You just you don't see it. You see it, but you can't believe it's anything but that. But it isn't that. It's like this wall. If when I was new, my sponsor would have said to me something effective, Clancy, that wall is green. And I think, <laughs> goof. Either you're kidding me, or you're crazy, or you don't understand what brown is. That's brown. I don't care if it looks brown to you, you 
act like it's green. Now, we never discussed the colors of walls, because that's easy to be matched with color chip. We discovered, we discussed perception colors, such as, I don't care how it looks to you, don't quit that job. I don't care how it looks to you, you go over and apologize to her, you acted badly. And those perceptions were just as foreign to me as telling me that wall was green. Because I could prove from my side that wasn't the way it was. She hurt me. She said something terrible to me. I'm not going to work for that guy who's exploiting me. On and on and on and on. But that's in a sense what a, a, of a sponsor. To find someone who can give you objective perceptions when your perceptions are discolored. Because you will act on your discolored perceptions sooner or later. They will create emotional problems that you will have to justify and away we go again. The function of acting to relieve conflict, of walking through it, of finding some way to say, you do this and then you do it. You get a certain, you get a certain security just by accepting the direction and doing it, even though you disagree with it. But the purpose of this sort of therapy is not to en enhance the strength of your intellect. It is to do something that I don't know of any other way to do it for people like me. It relieves pressures on the emotion. I get back control with my intellect, not by strengthening my intellect, but by weakening the pressures on the emotion. And it has to go on and on because the world is full of stimuli. I can know everything about how to stay well right now, and if I don't take some sort of continuing therapeutic, when I get out of whack, I'll think that's real again. I have to have some benchmark to bring me back. That is why knowledge will not keep people sober, as a rule. Information will not keep people sober. Love will not keep people sober, because love comes and goes. A love of God will keep you sober, perhaps? No. I've been flown across the country a couple of times to talk to big groups of clergymen that are sent to this big home from all over the world, and they love God, but they can't stay sober. And AAs teach them how to stay sober so they can go back and love God sober. There has to be something more. There has to be something to deal with the intermittent spells of childish perception. And that's why we have to have a continuing therapeutic. That's what makes alcoholism baffling. That's why sometimes people who have been sober for many years get drunk. They say, I now know all about it. I shouldn't have to keep doing that stuff now. And they stay all right. But the rest of the world gradually gets out of whack in their perception. And they all start to go to hell again. In fact, to oversimplify, the function in recovery of alcoholism is not even to change yourself. It's just to make everybody else in the world shape up. And if you stop doing it, they find out and act bad. That's why they say alcoholics don't get too hungry or angry or lonely or tired. Not because those are bad things, they are perception disorders. When you're hungry, you have a tendency to become impatient and intolerant. Hey! It is always justified, but it's an obsessive emotion. Ah, what did you do today? Ah. 
Could you be angry? When you're lonely, it presses every self-pity button and every neurotic personality. Oh, I guess they're probably all at a party tonight somewhere. I'll be all right. I like watching Hooker. <laughs> and when you're tired, you stay the same, but people take advantage of you. It, I don't know how they know. Total strangers. I've noticed this a couple times. I get on the Santa Monica freeway in the morning to go to work after I've given my all for others. And I'm tired. I just want to get to work. And I can just see some old lady up there. See the boy in the blue Ford? He's tired. I'm going to cut that son of a bitch off. Yeah, it just makes you crazy. That's why people like me have to sacrifice all the time. I must sacrifice and take care of myself and keep taking remedial action. I don't even do it for me. I do it so all of you will stay okay. That's a hard concept because all of my life I've been trained, if I know it, I can beat you. And here, knowing it isn't worth a pitcher of warm spit. It isn't worth anything. Doing it. Doing the remedial action, no matter how you feel at the moment. I must not allow my life to be at the beck and call of childish emotions that even now occasionally creep up on me when I'm not taking care of myself. That's what alcoholism is, why it's so deadly, and that's why it's so re recoverable. All I have to do is surrender, the hardest single thing in the world. And surrender to this concept, I've used this analogy many times, but it's still true, you know. You make it sound as though you just, you just throw in the towel and live happily ever after. Humans can't do that, not like me. I throw in the towel. And as soon as the heat is off, I inch it back. And I spend the rest of my life tearing off small strips and see if that'll satisfy the dirty bed. Yeah, just little by little. Incremental surrender. I'm getting sick of it. If I didn't feel so good, I'd cut out. But that's what it's about. I think it's a real case. I know that you've heard many, many fine speakers here, much more knowledgeable than I, much more experienced, much finer people perhaps. But I think maybe you could understand. That's why we, two people, some people, alcoholism is not recoverable by any tool applied to any disease because alcoholism is basically the lethal aspect is it's a disease of perfection, perception. And the recovery has to be in conjunction with something that will alter the perception or the alcoholic must surely drink. Thank you. I'm very pleased, let me say this, I'm very pleased that you gave me a halfway standing ovation, but if you really, if you really want to show your sincerity, go fill my car with gas. Okay. Are there any questions in any aspects of the things I talked about? Yes, sir.
about the mission. Well, I guess I've covered my primary subject perfectly. Now I have to go on another subject, all right? Midnight Mission is one of the few major charities left in the world, I suppose, that still categorically declines any sort of governmental funding, federal, state, city. We feed about 450,000 people a year. We bed down about 50,000 people. It is not an alcoholic treatment center, it's way below that. Although we do have AA, AAs come in and put on meetings three nights a week and occasionally someone will get a spark out of that. All of the employees of the mission are men who have come off the street at one time or another, hopeless, because we believe, we believe there it is not an AA facility at all, but I believe the same concept applies. You work yourself back to self-worth. You do not think yourself back to self-worth. Occasionally, some guy will get out of there and do good again. Another guy will fall by the wayside. We are not connected with any church. It may be the only major mission in the world where you don't have to listen to a religious service to get fed or bedded down. Not against religious services, but in my experience, there was a certain negativism that applied to me only in my reaction. Sick with hunger, have a man hold some food and say, here's some dinner for you. Sit down over there for an hour and then I'll give it to you. And uh, after I preach to you for an hour. That sometimes doesn't increase your spiritual growth. I'm not against it. It works for people. We, we have uh, some funny things. We have the only state employment office located in a private institution in the state of California in our building. And we get hundreds of jobs out of there every month. Not executive jobs, leaf raking, peddling handbills, but ways that guys can start working their way back to reality. Um, we distribute clothing. And oddly enough, this whole thing is uh, run exclusively by public contribution. That's unheard of in this day and age. At Christmas and Easter, we put on a formal campaign. and I try to get a little TV time, if I can, here and there, and explain what we're doing. I mean, not, don't pay for it. And uh, we send letters out to anybody who might be interested. We can't send it to everybody, but we send it we know about. And the contributions come in, and people leave us little money in their estates here and there, and little things like that. And so we function well. It's a big, it is almost the opposite of what a mission should be like. There was an old mission there for many years, the Midnight Mission, but it got knocked down in the earthquake in 1971. The, 19, the directors and insurance money and so on buttonholed their friends. And they built this modern, airy, spacious, sunny thing. Like time after time, people I've known in showbiz will call up and say, I understand it's your mission. Can we come down and use your mission? We're shooting a TV show and we want to need a background of a mission. And they come down with their cameras and, you know, where's another mission? This is a mission. The last time we had a guy come down to shoot, we had some feature in the, where they wanted to make a police. Academy dining hall. They used our dining room for that. It looked too clean for anything else. I didn't even like the idea of being connoted as the police academy dining room. That isn't up to my standards. But, but that's what the mission is. We have no fundraisers. It really is almost a, with the human fallibilities built in me and the other people there, of course, but it's almost as a, the type of ethic that you would, uh, want to see. That's why it's very rewarding to me. Sometimes, though, I get very discouraged. Sometimes, because I'm a human being, sometimes my perception of that place, what am I doing here? 
a grimy, grubby, goddamn place. I want to be out where there's a little more excitement and fun. I've, you know, I've worked at radio and television in Los Angeles and Hollywood, and I've been here and there, and I've had big jobs. This is really grubby. Just another succession of guys dying. You never see anybody decent. And uh, other days, I think, when I go home from there at night, I feel as enthralled as a crusader coming home from Acre. You know, just that's part of my own perception. I, I've been there in a few months. It'll be ten years, and maybe I, at the end of ten years, I may one day just decide, hey, and I may be there for the rest of my life. I don't know. I, I don't want to project into it. Although I'm, I'm getting a little too old to get into branch manager training for household finance. So I may have to make my move pretty soon. But that's about the bit that I'd mission. Anyway, any other questions on any subject whatsoever? Could I tell you a few words about the Texas State Insane Asylum? They hurt me dreadfully there. I was telling this Lois, telling Lois earlier that I was on the faculty of the University of Texas one year directing a grand opera, Mephistopheles, in the original Italian. Nothing more fun than watching Texans sing Italian. <laughs> and through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, later that year I was in the insane state of Saint Asylum in Big Spring, Texas. Not for drinking, I'm happy to say. I hadn't sunk to that. There was just some erroneous perceptions that made me think I'd be better off dead than alive. And they saw in my record that I had directed a grand opera, so they had me direct the Christmas pageant. It was not quite as complex as the grand opera. It was just kind of a second grade level so the whole student body could follow along. The director's, the director's main job that I brought off beautifully, I was able to keep the three wise men off the Virgin Mary till the curtain got up. <laughs> Never got any appreciation for that either. Let me tell you something about the Phoenix drunk tank. That's a bad place. One day I was, one year I was working at Tracy Lock Advertising in Dallas, working on the Elsie Nelmer stuff for the Morton Company, through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings. I woke up one morning and I was in the Phoenix, Arizona drunk tank, which is a thousand miles away, which is a altered perception with a vengeance. <laughs> and some guy had just got done kicking all my front teeth out. And I, uh, thank God I had intellectual knowledge to help me because I had spent several thousand dollars in psychoanalysis up to that time. Now, once you've been in psychoanalysis, you always have insights that have not been given to most of the little people. <laughs> he accused me of vomiting on his bunk, was the reason he gave her. And I was so sick, I could not move my head out of the way of this guy's shoe. But I was almost instantly able to observe his problem. I remember thinking, I thought, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> when you... When you know things like that, it restores your feelings of superiority and completeness. <laughs> I could tell you stories that make just tears roll down your cheeks how I've been hurt, but I, I'm going to be brave. 
And the funny thing is, I eventually, I went through the classic alcoholic syndrome. You know, I was a high-bottom drunk, and then a medium-bottom drunk, and then a low-bottom drunk. And I, uh, as I got banned out of the midnight mission, I was lost my family, my home, my occupation, everything I had. And at the last day I drank, the last drink I took, if someone would have put a lie detector on my arm and said, are you an alcoholic? I would have said no. And that needle wouldn't have flicked. I had real problems, but they weren't alcohol. But sometimes that's one of the great pieces of it. Almost everything I have told you today, I have learned long after I was sober. I was sober on spec long before I started to understand why. That's one of the great helps in being desperate. You, you take the action before you understand why. Waiting to understand why, it's, it's like that old analogy I like to use, it's like being on the deck of the Titanic and hitting an iceberg. Everybody else rows away as fast as they can. And people like me say, I'm not getting off until I understand why this happened. <laughs> and you may get the answer. I now know why. You know, knowing why doesn't help. You have to do something to get I am, uh, I'm very glad to be here this morning. I think it's been a lot better since all of the important people were in Houston. <laughs> Just us, just us little people gathered together here to, to share. But I appreciate being here, and uh, I want to thank Muriel and the group for inviting me, and it's uh, been a nice experience, and thank you very much.